1: We've been given everything pertaining to life and godliness, and that is pretty much found in the Word of God. So the question is, is God's Word really enough? Well, we'll seek to answer that question next. Join us for Abounding Grace. Is God's Word sufficient for our daily lives? Is it really enough? Does the Word of God have for you and I everything we need for godliness and for right living? Well, these are questions we're answering over the course of the next two programs here on Abounding Grace. Welcome to the broadcast. We're continuing our survey of Colossians. We find ourselves in chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. And again, the message is simply called, Is God's Word really enough? Stick around and find out. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner.
0: Is God's Word all you really need? God has given us three strong warnings in the previous verses we've been studying to keep us from being seduced away from Christ to man and to teach us that the Bible is really all we need to worship and to live for Him. Let's look at those warnings. First, uh, we'll look at verse 8 of chapter 2. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. Verse 16, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food, or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things that are mere shadows of what is to come, which is Christ, but the substance belongs to Christ. Then verse 18, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated Without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Now, this last warning in, introduces our text for today. And our text tells us in no uncertain terms how to avoid being seduced and enslaved and defrauded by false teachings. And it tells us how we can keep from being deceived by remembering two things. In verses 20 and 21, remember what you are in Christ and think and live consistently what you are in him. Then in verses 22 and 23, remember that all man-made religions and worldviews and philosophies are total failures. Now, both of these exhortations and practical applications of the fact that the Bible is God's Word really is all you need to live for Him. So, let's look at our text in more detail. Verses 18 and 19 say... Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize. In other words, if you let yourself be defrauded by these deceivers, these false teachers, they will pull you away from Christ and rob you of the riches of wisdom and understanding that you have in him. If you remember our study from a couple of weeks ago. Well, what is a defrauded person? It is someone who disregards the implications of what it means to be complete in Jesus Christ and who submits himself to man-made worldviews and ways of life and religious practices. In verse 18, Paul tells us what this deprauded man looks like. He says in the middle part of verse 18, he delights himself in self-abasement and the worship of angels so rather than sanctifying us submission to these these traditions of men that paul has been warning us about throughout the entire second chapter produces in us pride a false humility self-abasement austerity of life the denial of earthly pleasures and extreme and rigorous strictness in religious practices beyond what our Lord has demanded of us. One commentator by the name of D.A. Carson describes the person here as someone whose ego is inflated as he submits to human traditions in the worship and life of God. He says, quote, far from being humble, he is inflated with pride. For a religion that stems from man's speculation rather than God's revelation inevitably leads to self-esteem rather than to humility. Yet this attitude of pride is utterly without justification. For the supposed knowledge on which it tests is not true knowledge, but mere human invention, the mind which manifests such conceit. Is not controlled by the Spirit of God, but by the flesh, by the remnants of that old fallen life that once dominated us before we were Christians. Such people who take a great delight in self abasement and in sacrificing things for the sake of Christ, which sacrifices are not demanded of us, not only delights in being humble. And makes everyone else thank their humble, but also delights, says our text, in angel worship. Now, isn't that interesting that Paul continues to jump on the church of Colossae because there are people who allow themselves to be defrauded by worshiping angels. And apparently it was because they felt a need for an intermediator to complete the mediation we have already in Christ. You see, the thing we must keep coming back to in this passage if we are to avoid being seduced by false teaching is we have got to know what it means to be complete in the Lord Jesus Christ. And these people worshipped these intermediators apparently because they were ignorant of or didn't believe in or were never taught the fact that Christ's mediation on our behalf was complete. You don't need any other go-between. There is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. And this worship of the angels to complete the mediation of Christ may sound a bit strange to us, but there is still a form of it practiced today in Roman Catholicism. Because Roman Catholicism believes that we have a need to turn to Mary and the saints in heaven as mediators to complete the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they do so because they either do not believe or they fail to understand that the Christian is complete in the completeness of Christ mediation in whom scripture says all the fullness of God dwells in bodily form. Let me give you an application of this text by the commentator F.F. F. Bruce. Now listen, we don't normally think of this, but this is what Paul is getting at. He says, there are some people who love to make a parade of exceptional piety, and there are others who are overprone to be taken in by them, They pretend to have a way to a higher plane of spiritual experience as though they had been initiated into some sacred mysteries which gives them an infinite advantage over the uninitiated such as us. Now what he is saying is the problem in Colossae was that there were some people who just liked to show off being exceptionally and extraordinarily superior to every other Christian. So they talk in a way that seems to be super spiritual. They have expressions on their face that look super spiritual. Their countenance of life is always, is always looking depraved as, uh, as a super spiritual way to life or anything that would make them superior spiritually to other people. And there are some Christians who are taken in by that kind of understanding. I know of some. There are some Christians who believe that if you look and sound spiritual and you dress spiritual and your whole countenance and demeanor exudes super spirituality, that they are going to believe whatever you say. And you might be teaching them some false doctrine. You might lead them in a way that moves them away from the Word of God. But if you have this appearance of super piety and super spirituality as if you are living on a higher spiritual plane than they are, they will follow you. They'll even send you money if you ask them on television. And that is the reason for the growth of the charismatic movement in the 21st century. Look at the next part of verse 18. This person that is defrauded. He takes his stand on visions he has seen. Now this probably refers to pseudo visions. Just like his pseudo humility. He is here is a, a guy or a gal who claims to have visions from God. And tries to make his own ideas and practices sound as if they are on par with God's word. And many times they even convince themselves this is true. I'm sure you've heard people say things like, well, God told me this is true. Or God showed me this is what I should do. Oh, you can't find it in the Bible. But God showed me and God told me what I or we should do. Like, you should incorporate this in your worship, or you should behave in this manner. So they put their ideas, their self-conceived ideas, on par with the Bible. Convincing themselves and trying to convince others it is of God. So there was someone in Colossae who put his ideas, his preferences, what he thought was right and wrong, on par with God's word. And as a result, notice the last part of verse 18. It says, he is inflated without a cause by his fleshly mind. He is inflated with pride and self-righteousness and self-love and a sense of super spirituality because he is being, oh, so faithful to his man-made, self-centered religious practices And rigorous demands on himself. But there's no justification for his pride to be inflated because all of his ideas come from a fleshly mind. That is, that attitude and outlook that dominated him when he was yet an unbeliever. And the point is even after a person becomes a Christian, he's not perfect. And this antiquated way of thinking may linger and defraud a behavior for a time. You may believe, well, I believe the Bible, but I also believe this. And I may do this in worship, but I I love to do this over here, even though it's not in the Bible. People put their ideas and their preferences on par with the Bible, even after they become Christians. Now, the main problem with someone who is being defrauded is found in verse 19. This is what makes a person vulnerable to being defrauded by false doctrine, it says. And not holding fast to the head from whom the entire Bible body being supplied and held together by joints and ligaments grows with a growth which is from God. This is the first thing about him. This is the root from which this self-inflation and pride and everything else grows. And that is, he is not holding fast to Christ. He has loosened his hold on Christ. He's not being as faithful in things by maintaining a close relationship with him through prayer and Bible study and worship and fellowship with other Christians and Meditating on the word of God. He's letting his grip on Christ loosen. And as a result of not holding fast to the head, Christ, he is easy prey for the seducers. Now this person who is not holding fast to the head, he's not an outsider. He's not someone who's outside of the church. And to say that he has loosened his hold is to say that he is someone who is a member of the church there at Colossae, but he never really had a solid grasp of Christ. He is a member of the church. He may have believed the preaching of the right things, but he has been a nominal attachment. It has been a real spiritual, it has not been a real spiritual attachment to Christ, but a nominal, intellectual, emotional attachment that he is loosening that nominal attachment to Christ describes a lot of people in the church. They aren't spiritually connected with Christ emotionally, intellectually, externally. They may be, but it is not with saving faith. And those people who are not holding fast to the head become easy prey. And that type of looseness is contrasted with revelation And that firm grasp of Christ, even in the face of persecution and the refusal to deny the faith, no matter what the cost. Do you remember what God said about the church at Pergamum? Oh, it wasn't a perfect church. But in Revelation 2.13, Jesus says to the church, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet You hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Jesus says, you're not a perfect church, but you live in the midst of severe persecution. Satan's throne is there. People are being martyred for their faith, but you're holding fast. And you're not denying the faith and you are not being swept off your feet and you're not being defrauded. Whereas these people in Colossae are being defrauded of the truth and are being drawn away from Christ to the worship of man. Why? Because they are not holding fast to the head from whom the entire body is being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments and grows with a growth which is from God. Now, there are several times in Colossians where Paul uses the metaphor of a body to describe the church and Christ as the head of that church. And as the head, he is the source of life for the body. He is the source of growth for the body. He is the source of unity for that body. All these things are drawn from the head, And the strength and the life and the growth and the development go throughout the body to the various joints and ligaments of that body until there is this balance of symmetrical growth of the whole body to maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me ask you some questions before we go to the next section. Does any doctrine you hold or any religious practice you perform inflate your ego what all do you believe what practices do you perform in your life do any of those make you feel proud of the fact that you are so humble and so spiritual are any of you here proud for believing in predestination proud of yourself because you're a Calvinist not an Arminian That you are a Protestant but not a Roman Catholic? Are you proud of that? If so, one of two things are true of you. Either your doctrine or practice is man-made or else you do not rightly understand and apply true biblical doctrine because the Bible's doctrines and the Bible's acquired practices when rightly believed and obeyed Always produce humility, not high self-esteem. Another question. Are you holding fast to your head the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you loosening your grasp on him so you can grasp more of this world for your own pleasure and your own benefit? Do you appreciate your place and role in the body of Christ, the church? Where you see, it's only through the joints and the ligaments of the body functioning faithfully that the strength and the life and the growth and the unity of the whole and all of its members are protected against seduction and being deluded by false doctrine and false practices. What is the reason you come to Reformed Heritage Church? Is the only reason you come to Reformed Heritage Church is to hear the preaching? This is only a place to come and hear preaching. Or do you believe and act like it is truly the body of Christ? And you realize that the power and the life of the head flows from the head through the various ligaments and joints and members of the church into each other's lives. So that if there is something wrong, if there is an artery that is blocked, If there is a kidney that is malfunctioning, the whole body is going to suffer unless the various parts of the body are ministering to each other and living for each other. Now, let's look at the two protections protections against being seduced that I mentioned at the very beginning. Look at verses 20 and 21. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, which you were living in, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not touch, or do not taste, do not touch? Now, what is the point? Paul is saying, if you are not going to be seduced by this world, you must remember that you are in Christ and you must think and live consistently with what you are in him. Paul's been talking about that ever since the beginning of the book. Look at chapter 1, verses 25 through 28. Paul says, Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from the word of God. That is, The mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him. And remember I said, neuthetically counseling every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. All right, now, what are you? In other words, what is your position in Christ that you are to live and think consistently with? We are in a vital union with him, Christ, says the text. It is that vital union. He is in us, and we are in Christ so closely identified with him that we experience the consequences of whatever he did. That's a very, very powerful truth. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us so that we experience the consequences of whatever Jesus Christ did in his life. That was the point in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. It says, because of this union, we were buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith and the working of God, who raised him from the dead. Uh, and, and what was it that Christ did? He died, was buried, and he rose from the dead. And in him we die to the power of sin and we rise to the newness of life.